Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I'm joined by critic Armand White for an unusual conversation. We will be talking about Jean-Luc Godard's latest movie, about some of his 60s movies, and about his importance to cinema as an art and to cinema's history. Sir, thank you for joining me, thank you very much for suggesting this. I, I was surprised very pleasantly to read an essay of yours last year about how 2018 stacks up against 1968. The short answer is not well, but it made me think again about Godard and the 60s, a rare opportunity, I think, for all of us, so I'm especially grateful that you're willing to talk about this stuff. Well, thanks for asking me, Titus. I'm uh, happy to do it, and uh, I'm glad you read the piece from last year. The original impetus for that piece was reminding people about our cultural heritage. And I thought it would be interesting to go back and review what film culture was like 50 years ago in 1968, a key year in in movie history, kind of a turning point, really, in that period when so many American filmmakers learned so much from European art cinema of the years before. So 68 was a turning point, I felt. I thought it would be interesting to go back and look at 68, see what it offered, and see what we have learned from it, if anything. Probably the best-known film from 68 is uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, a great film and an important film for sure, but I didn't think it was the best film of that year. Personally, my favorite film of that year was Jean-Luc Godard's Weekend, and I'm happy to remind people of the importance of that film and the importance of a figure like Godard in the course of film history, and certainly in film history today. Which brings us up to date to uh, the newest Godard film, called The Image Book, which opened in New York City last week. That's an important film that we will be remiss to not talk about either, so let's start there, I'd say. The Image Book is one of those essay films of Godard's. The essay film is a practice that Godard initiated in the 1960s, where he doesn't simply make movies to tell a story, but to address certainly political and social issues by examining how characters and even how he himself responds to the events today. And he discusses the ideas that those events spark in him. And always with Godard, what makes Godard a filmmaker to care about is that he talks about politics, he talks about life, in terms of how culture represents life and politics. And we see his response to them and his response to culture and politics then, in turn, stirs our own responses as viewers. This is one of the many things that makes him a special filmmaker, and it's one of the things that makes his newest film, The Image Book, particularly interesting. I like The Image Book because Godard is assessing the cinematic past, and he's thinking about what is it that we've learned from movies of the past about cultural history and where do we go from there? What have we learned and what are we going to do with the things we've learned about life and politics and culture? The image book is like a catalog of film images and art images that Godard brings together to offer the viewer a sense of our cultural foundation and how the things we've learned, particularly from film history, which is the photographic history of human experience. There are lots of film clips in the image book. Godard presents these film clips and ruminates on how old film clips impact the way that we think about politics today. And the clips range many different genres, but they're always pertinent. One significant film clip that I found was a movie from the post-World War II period by Jacques Teneur called Berlin Express. And in the Berlin Express clips that Godard uses, you see a number of uh, characters, refugees from World War II, boarding a train. 
these characters played by movie actors. They all represent different experiences in World War II and different secrets and desires that these characters hold. But they board a symbolic train and they're journeying somewhere probably off into the future. And it's a beautiful condensation of how you could say we're all in this together. Godard found a perfect film clip to represent the political circumstances that we go through today. When you see those Jacques Tenere images that Godard re-presents to us, those characters' political circumstances are also so beautifully presented in dreamlike images that they also represent a kind of spiritual condition. I'll just say it simply. Godard makes poetry, finds the poetry in cinema. There's no other filmmaker who does that so well. I read your review of this movie, which I have not had the chance to see yet, and I, of course, was thinking along with you as best I could, because it does seem like Godard is on his last legs, and he wants to say something about what cinema has added up to, and what the likely prospects are now. Well, I'm going to resist saying it that way, but I'll make a, a confession to you. Back in 1994, Godard made a film with an autobiographical title called JLG by JLG. I believe it's the first time he ever made a film that, especially in the title, referred to himself. This was 1994. By the way, have you seen JLG by JLG? No. No. Okay. That's all right. JOG by JOG kind of anticipates the newest film, The Image Book, in the sense that it's the movie in which Godard recollects his experience of cinema and art, and he talks about it. As in The Image Book, he presents a series of clips and art images, and he holds forth on their political and spiritual significance as well. Well, when that film came out in 1994, Decades after Godard made his debut in 1959 with the movie Abu Dasouf, that's known to Americans as Breathless. And so he's been making movies for a long time. His career has gone through many, many phases. And I thought, oh, this is the swan song. This is Godard on his last leg, I thought. That was a mistaken thought then. It's my mistake. And so I pushed the idea that it's a mistake to think that he's on his last leg now. Oh, he's a much older man now, but who knows if it's his last film or not. He's always full of ideas. He's always full of imagination. God only knows how much further he will go. There's no way of saying it. And the lesson I learned from thinking so mournfully about J.O.G. by J.O.G. back in 1994 was not to anticipate that Godard is finished. Let's hope he's never finished because he's a singular kind of filmmaker in the sense that he keeps everybody else on their toes. And he always seems to be fresh with ideas. I hope that never ends. And however long it goes, I wish him the best and always future health and creativity, of course. So I know that from other reviews, it's been popular to say that this is Godard at the end of the road. But we don't know how far his road will go. Also because the kind of filmmaker that Godard is, he always seems to be ahead of other filmmakers. Film critic Gregory Solman did an interview with Martin Scorsese once, in which the subject of Godard came up, and Scorsese said, oh yeah, Jean-Luc Godard, he's ahead of all of us. This seems to always be the case. Perhaps part of his genius, part of his intense involvement with filmmaking and art making, that just makes him think more about what he's doing, about what cinema means, about what culture and spirituality and ideas mean. Most other filmmakers are, it seems, mostly concerned with making product and being involved in the economics of the industry that they rarely think about the politics of what they do. 
the morality of what they do, about the poetry of what they could attempt to do. But Godard is always thinking about those things. That keeps him ahead of the game, never seeming to be on his last legs. Well, the first thing I'm learning is I'm going to have to go see JLG on JLG. Yes, yes, it's very much worth seeing. That's an autobiographical essay film from Godard that then led to another new phase in his career, which is a kind of video curatorship where he looked at film history in new ways and very personal ways. And it led to a video series he did called Histoire du Cinema. Yeah. An even longer excursion into the history of art and images and politics. The man's full of ideas, full of imagination, and always ahead of everyone else in doing so. The reason I asked is one thing that seems to make Godard unique is how protective he is of movie history, how deeply serious he seems to be about it, the extent to which he is trying to preserve it and to show that it makes us able to look at the world around us and actually see what's going on, as opposed to simply follow conventions. And so my question, how does he look back on a hundred years and something of cinema? And does he think there's a future for cinema? Well, in these retrospective movies of his, there's a great sense of appreciation for what cinema has given humankind in terms of ideas about beauty, representation of human personal and social experience. There is a sense in these retrospective movies that what the movies have bequeathed to us is so important, it should never be lost. It should be a part of the human soul. And that's really the deep and moving reason for making these retrospective films. By showing the importance of film history that way, he does it by connecting film history to the history of art representation in other forms, from painting to sculpture to classical music to poetry and literature also. Odar implies that this should never be lost. The significance of, of art should never be lost as long as there is mankind, as long as man has a mind, the mind being represented by the image, by the uh, symbol of a book of images, that our bequest from art history should never be lost. This should always be a part of what human experience is from here on, even if it seems to be in danger of being forgotten. But it won't be forgotten as long as we have the examples of remembrance and curatorship that Godard's movies are representing. I think he presents that in the face of all kinds of negativities that seem superficially to be apparent to us. He presents the idea that art matters, that ideas matter, that morality matters, despite evidence to the contrary in the bitter and rancorous world in which we live. So there is a future, even if it's just a future that we hope for, a spiritual kind of future. I believe there's a line at the end of the image book where Godard says that even if movies don't live up to our expectations, our expectations never die. That seems to be true. Great thought. So one thing I would like to emphasize about Godard is how important memory is to him, and that memory is the history of cinema. It doesn't activate by itself, but it is always there for people who do want to be part of it. Yes. And through it to understand again what the struggles of people were in the 20th century and in what way people tried to embrace human experience as such through this new form of art. And I think it will matter more and more. The ability to remember is an ability to order things and in a world of digital memories that are available but chaotic, 
the ability to order things up in remembering them to make sense of human experience will be very important. Oh, absolutely. And so, while Godard is an artist of the 20th century, obviously in the past few decades, he's also been a human alive in the 21st century. And so his 20th century concerns have not lessened in the 21st century. He still has the same concerns. He's still aware of the social and political struggles that people go through around the world. And he's also very much concerned about how those struggles are reflected in the art that gets created. And so even though Godard works in different genres, you might say, he's always interested in examining how politics and culture intersect. And that's never changed for him which takes us back to his origins in 20th century filmmaking. And we can talk about that and get back to my remembrance of 1968 and the great film of 1968, which I propose was Godard's Weekend. Godard, being a European filmmaker, he's part of that movement in which European art films were imported into the United States, often in very haphazard ways. Sometimes European films came to the United States years after they were made, or sometimes as soon as they were made. This is demonstrated by a curious incident that in 1968, there were three new Godard films that opened in the United States. Le Carabinier, La Chinoise, and Weekend, movies that were new to American viewers. Even though all those films had actually been made prior to 1968, Godard was extremely prolific during the 1960s. He made films at a fast pace. His mind was burning with ideas and imagination, and he worked quickly, and he worked well. There isn't a single bum film in his entire filmography, and he could make movies quickly and superlatively all the time. So in 1968, 50 years ago, almost exactly when I wrote the National Review piece, here are three extraordinary Godard films, all dealing with politics, spirituality, and our political past, as well as ideas about the political present and speculations on the political future. Lake Carabinier is a kind of fantasy war film, and it deals with the history of 20th century war and struggle. In even its black and white, almost documentary-like style, it makes reference to the past representation of war in movies, as most people thought of it in the 20th century. And it features quite a lot of footage edited with sounds, which of course do not belong to the original war footage of aerial bombings and such right. things. They're brought out of mankind's memory shot on film and then turned into movies. Yes, it's a pretty in ingenious way in, in the 1960s to make a war film that deals with war throughout the 20th century, but especially the kinds of revolutions and rebellions that were going on in the 60s just prior to the making of this film. It's historical, but it has a sense of spontaneity through its uh, documentary-like style and Godard's use of contemporary black-and-white filmmaking techniques and his always innovative use of sound as well. So it's a very contemporary film, but it makes reference to the past, even as it's about the present-day uh, rebellion and revolution. A very, very unique and still fascinating approach to war as an experience and as film subject. And the second of Godard films to open in the U.S. in 1968 was La Chinoise, the contemporary film, because it deals with the phenomenon of student revolution, of youth protest, and particularly with French students, French young people who are fascinated by communism and Maoism. A handful of students who among themselves create a cell of revolutionaries, and they talk and think and plan revolution. 
1968, it was so up-to-date, so modern, that it almost had the effect of showing what youth revolutionaries were like, almost almost in a documentary sense, but in an especially remarkable cinematic way, in that unlike Le Carbonnier, La Chinoise is in color, in very vibrant and intense primary, colors prim- <laughs> essentially. So that the experience of watching cinema as a form of visual art becomes even more alive than it did in Le Carbonnier. So even though Godard has some similar ideas he's working with between those two films, the ways in which he does it in La Chinoise are intensified and show even a greater style of imagination than in Le Carbonnier. And then there's the third film, The Peak, is creativity in those films that opened in 1968, which is Weekend. And Weekend is kind of a prophetic fantasy about middle-class life, bourgeois life, facing the coming revolution. It's fantastic in every way that the word fantastic might suggest to you. Yes, so let's start with La Chinoise. And first of all, for our audience, Godard is in a rare way combining here something like prophecy with something like telling you the news. The movie was made and released in France in the latter part of 67 and the end of December. And then not half a year after it came out, May 68 happened, of course, in France as in America as everywhere else. All of a sudden, student revolts were not just the subject of this rather comedic movie, they became intense political conflicts, and a lot of democratic regimes especially had to reckon with the fact that the generation they had raised in post-war prosperity did not believe that society was just and justifiable, that what their parents believed in was worth believing in. This was quite a shock, of course. Now, in the case of La Chinoise, it's uniquely comic, There is a lot of setting up of scenes that are hysterical. My favorite is, of course, something that you might have seen in a Lubitsch movie decades back. The cell of communist revolutionaries early in the morning after their rude awakening go out on the balcony and start doing their morning exercises, their calisthenics while reciting each one a word at a time from Mao's Little Red Book. It's amazing. You don't see it coming in the movie, of course, but what it captures about the combination of earnestness in these kids and, on the other hand, the surreal element of having the least experienced people in a society profess the most serious political sentiments is just damn near glorious. (laughs) And so it's a very comical movie, part of which is shot as a documentary interviews with this young cell of revolutionaries, which again shows Godard asking you, is this prophecy or is this something that will show up on the news any day now? Or something about what our society really is that we aren't aware of, but nevertheless it is brewing up. These kids are quite funny in their own ways, in certain ways touching as well, because they are not immune to love. But at the same time, they are tinged by violence, and the movie does, in its last part, become darker and darker, since you can only frame so many shots to reproduce famous posters, famous revolutionary scenes from communist history, from the struggle and its heroes. You can only bring up Mao so many times, and then, of course, things do get quite dark. 
There's no innocence in these children even though they are clueless. And that's a very unusual way of looking at young lefty revolutionaries. Of course, Godard was not young anymore, he was near 40, but he was a committed lefty, is a committed lefty for all I can tell. Or perhaps it is precisely because he is, in his political opinions, a man of the left, he sees how earnest and how surreal these children are at the same time, and that this might go crazy. Yeah, I agree with all that. Uh, one thing I didn't say about Godard is that he's funny, that he has a great sense of humor, and that he sees the humor in things, which is part, I think, of having an analytical mind that is always questioning and not easily swayed, not easily had by any proposition that just pops up. And so what you have in a film like La Chinoise is a very alert, attentive mind responding to the political ferment that's going on among young people, as you point out, among baby boomers, the generation that should have benefited from the struggles and the lessons of World War II. And in fact, this young generation turns out to be a generation of ingrates and of rebels who feel that what we now call the greatest generation in some sense betrayed them because they didn't live up to the things that they fought for and the things that they promised. And so the youth of the 60s felt that through revolution, they could make it right either through their egotistical sense of being morally superior to their parents' generation or else make it right, if necessary, through violence. And so Godard sees these things happening, and he's one of the few filmmakers who is able to analyze it and make movies about it instantaneously, and at the same time make movies about it in a way that's not simply earnest, but in a way that is also satirical, satirical being a tool in his analytical kit. So he satirizes all the suppositions that young people were making in the 60s. And something interesting happens with La Chinoise. It is, in some sense, a movie about youth romance with communism, with Mao, but it's also, even more so, it's a critique of that. And what's interesting about Godard in film history is the way his films appear within the culture and also the way his films are received in the culture. For a long time, it was assumed that Godard was sponsoring the sale of Maoist youth in La Chinoise. But over time, the more one looks at the film, you can see the satirical impulse in it. You see the analytical impulse in it. You see his recognition of their fascination with the political revolution. He sees them being young people involved with romantic ideas. And he sees them a bit romantically, but he also satirizes them and analyzes them. And part of that scene that you mentioned that's so remarkable, the morning calisthenics while reciting political rhetoric, it's an automatically funny idea that makes you question what these characters do and how much they themselves are related to the ideas that they pay lip service to. Yeah. The satirical slash analytical aspect of La Chinoise is what makes it a great, extraordinary film because it's not just falling for political rhetoric. It certainly is not propaganda. It's the farthest thing away from propaganda. It's an analysis of political thinking among romantic young people. That's a very rich idea that's rarely been expressed so clearly. Yes, La Chinoise is typical of Godard in that it's not heavy on plot and therefore gives more importance to what elements of plot and what elements of characterization he does employ. And with these kids, as soon as he establishes that they're looking to be interviewed, they are a generation made for TV, 
who believe to some extent that they can change the world that way or that the world is on TV, they're incredibly clueless, but in their cluelessness and their earnestness, they're also willing to say just about anything that crosses their minds. And so you hear them talk about, in this case, the protagonist, the boy, says that he's very disappointed in his dad. He was a war hero, fought the Nazis. Now he runs a club med resort. And he doesn't even think about the fact that his new resort is exactly patterned like a concentration camp. And the boy says this fully seriously. And of course, Godard's camera in the movie is deadpanning almost in every scene. But it's there to show you that these are privileged kids, completely alike to American college students today, who live on top of the world fairly carelessly, actually, and at the same time, it only makes them more morally outraged. That seems to be precisely because they're like this boy who at some level realizes that his dad proved himself. And he really was patriotic and he really risked his life, whereas he himself is not capable of such things. And he resents the fact that the moral authority of his parents' generation, who had to actually face real Nazis, transfers to the parents' way of life as parents, as successful middle-class people living in a democracy. That humiliates the young generation. Hence this call for violence, because there's no way morally the heirs could compare to the people who secured peace. And, of course, the people who today scream about Nazis would never have the courage to face one and have nothing of the moral strengths of the generation who actually had to go kill them. Yeah, sure. I, uh, I like that you describe the Maoists in Les Noirs as clueless. Clueless being the title of that entertaining uh, American film from 1996, was it? Yeah. Uh, the Amy Heckling film about rich kids in Beverly Hills. Yep. Jane Austen for Bel Air. Yeah, sure, sure. You know, the, the film Clueless. Just through that title alone, you know, you cross Clueless with La Chinoise, you might come up with the uh, unfunny joke of millennials whose political ideas are the result of not having much real-world experience beyond privilege. It's one of the remarkable things about La Chinoise that Godard's looking at a privileged generation and is doing so consciously. The characters in La Chinoise are humorless, but Godard is not humorless. But also, one of the wonderful things about the movie, the sign of his great artistry, is that he does not condescend to his characters ever. These may be clueless kids and clueless in the moral sense, but they're bright. They're very intelligent. Yep. And La Chinoise is also, among many things, it is almost a showcase of youthful intelligence, especially of the college-educated sort. La Chinoise is full of intellectualisms, full of intellectual ideas, full of words, in fact. These are highly literate kids in the movie. They live among words. They live among ideas. They talk about ideas all the time. They talk about words all the time. They read. And one of the funny and dread, funny and dread ironies in Lashi Waz is that these kids, they're high information kids, and yet they are morally clueless, which is an important point to remember these days, especially when the media idealizes privileged youth today and safe space snowflake youth today. Today's media idealizes them without understanding them and certainly without ever analyzing them the way Godard did in La Chinoise.
And moreover, it is impossible nowadays to imagine anybody who would make a movie about American college-privileged kids that would compare with this. Sure. Not just because there's nobody on the left who is willing to do it, although some people on the left must know and be amused and appalled by the ridiculousness of it all, but there's nobody else either. Right. That's one way in which we have changed for the worst. It's regrettable. Yes, it's fascinating and ironic, isn't it? Because I recall that just a few months ago, there's a retrospective theater in New York City called the Metrograph, and there was a Godard retrospective based on the films he made after his 1968 peak, when Godard went into a new phase of his career, making more explicitly political films as part of a collective. That he started with another filmmaker named Jean-Pierre Goran, and they called their collective the Zega Vertov Group, named after the Russian revolutionary filmmaker from the 1920s. Yeah. Zega Vertov, having made well, his best-known film, is a film, a documentary called Man with a Movie Camera. Yes. The Metrograph did a retrospective of the Godard, Goran, Zega Vertov Group films, and it came and it went. Uh, wow. Despite the the way so-called woke or socially conscious millennials responded to some of the most intriguing and fascinating political films ever made, it was with a shrug. Nobody went to it. Nobody cared to see it. This too was foreseen in La Chinoise. The movie concludes with Godard as filmmaker appealing to Goethe, the only true European, and specifically to his Wilhelm Meister novels, right. that shows again how sensitive and interested he really was in the young generation. Godard was stuck in between the war generation and the baby boomers, sort of like Gen Xers are between baby boomers and millennials. But his appeal is what these young people need is something like Goethe, something that would give them a real sentimental education. There's no denying the romanticism, but there is no killing it either. It has to be worked with, and only a certain form of art could do that. The presence of Goethe at the end points to another thing in the movie that, of course, is happening all over America these days, and that's been going on since Europe turned revolutionary. The burying of the past, the destroying of the great works of the past. Right. These kids have a blackboard on which they have something like a hundred names of great artists, oh, yeah. among them Goethe, and they are erased. Yes. Chaotically, yeah. randomly, but ineluctably, all of them. Yes, a wonderful sequence, and so insightful as well. Well, you know, that's what Mao, that's what communism does. It does erase the inconvenient past, the truths of art, which is a consistent worry for Godard, a, a consistent concern, and something that his art warns against, but certainly stands against. He's aware that there is this tendency in the culture, this fascistic tendency, and that that fascistic tendency is not lost on youth either, that, that they are capable of it as well. It's remarkable insight, and that sequence you mentioned about the list of artist names that gets erased one by one. It's another example of Godard's prophetic jest that one must look at while you're watching La Chinoise and be amazed by it. Part of that amazement reoccurs while watching a film like The Image Book, because The Image Book is very much a film concerned with what might possibly be lost from our cultural heritage, which is also to say our political and spiritual heritage as well. Godard is always concerned with that. Yes. I think we can move now from this romanticism that might end up in terrorism, that seems to be the province of the left and its specific weakness, to the specific weakness and province of the right, which is a kind of consumerist materialism and weekend. Mm. This again has a very simple plot, 
young modern successful French couple are plotting to murder the in-laws, her parents, in order to inherit their extraordinary wealth. They want to usurp to inherit in a hurry. So they're going out of Paris into the province, to one ville, to do this. And instead of getting what they want, they go through a vaguely post-apocalyptic environment where things get increasingly more chaotic and more hilarious. Again, it's an incredibly funny movie that's at the same time hard to make sense of and that requires a couple of viewings just to piece together what's happening. But broadly speaking, this is a movie that starts with this kind of plotting to kill within the family, which comes down to saying that there's a danger in capitalism, in materialism, encouraging people to betray their family for the profit. Inheriting might turn bloody. And at the end of it, there's cannibalism. Right. And that should orient viewers, but as I said, it takes quite some thinking through to put the episodes together, because Godard is not only not obvious is funny he likes to joke around with what are very serious things there's a lot of dying and primarily it's people who die on the road in their cars one of the things that really is a phenomenon of the 20th century that we almost never pay attention to there is something incredibly funny about it all not just because it suggests that the man-machine alliance of the technological era is not as reliable as people think it is, but because it exposes human fragility, and therefore the fragility of human associations, and our inability to deal with the consequences of the things that we arrange and are arranged by, because of course our technology arranges our lives once we are done with arranging it to do so. Oh, sure. As you say, the high point of Weekend is a long traffic jam sequence a single panning shot that Godard stages. Weekend travelers on the road involved in a traffic jam. Everyone stalled in their ambitions to get away for the weekend. And as the camera pans along the highway, along the course of an extended traffic jam, you see chaos, you see bickering, you see fighting, you see death, and funnier, <laughs> lighter aspects of human behavior as well. Yeah, there are all sorts of curiosities. There's a zoo, there's a grandpa in the sunroof of one car playing ball with the nephew in the sunroof of another car, yep. and there's incessant honking throughout it all. Yeah, it's simply one of the great sequences in movie history. It's great because it captures so much of human experience in a credible way, even while pushing it to be funny in order to spark thought in the viewer. But the simplest thing about it is one of the most remarkable things about it, which is the fact that it is a traffic jam. It's a sequence based on the automobile and Godard's understanding of what the automobile signifies about 20th century life. It's probably the ultimate symbol of bourgeois materialism because it's the ultimate bourgeois possession once you get a car. It's a piece of technology that separates you from others, that gives you real mobility, and that also gives you status. And at the same time, through that great traffic jam sequence, you see that it's also a symbol of how civilization, especially a materialistic civilization, can collapse upon itself. Yeah. The reason why being that all of those materialist characters, I think it's not just simply a critique of capitalism or even simply a critique of the middle class. I think the idea that makes that sequence so wonderful, such such a wonderful expression of what Weekend is really about, it's about what happens when materialism overtakes people's spirituality. When they forget the things that make them human, that gives them hope. 
once that's been replaced with simply simple materialistic aspirations, murder and mayhem are not far behind. Yeah. Because then you lose your sense of humanity, you lose your sense of civility. And Godard sees it, he makes it initially funny, and then he makes it horrifying. And that, I would say, is what makes the film a challenge to viewers. Because, you know, we can operate in terms of episodes, and in watching narrative episodes, it's rather easy to follow takes more work to put it all together, but that's okay because that's part of the challenge of intelligent film watching. And intelligent film watching is what Godard and the French New Wave, which was the movement of young critics turned filmmakers that he was a part of in the late 1950s and 60s, Intelligent filmmaking is what he is really concerned about. Yeah. Making films in which people don't simply go to movies for passive entertainment or for horrible word, horrible word, escapism, but go to movies to learn more about their own experience and to get further in touch with their aesthetic and spiritual needs. Yeah. Of course, we cannot go through all the episodes, but it's worth dwelling on this one to show just how thoughtful Godard is and how he puts technology humor together to make serious points. What is the automobile? It's freedom. Of course, to the French especially, this matters. Godard's movies in this period have intertitles that are often dryly comic. And for this sequence, he has the simple comment, France from the French Revolution to the weekends of the Gaullist era, the post-war generation that in France is called Le Trang Glorieux, the glorious 30 years, that is to say the age of economic reconstruction. Now, there's a lot to be said, of course, for economic reconstruction, people not starving. But there is this other thing, too, that he captures so well. Freedom and the weekend and leisure are all there together, and of course they are essentially uncivilized. There is something wrong with people that is shown in the fact that when they cannot have the freedom they think they want through their automobiles to get to what they want, they honk continuously. That honk is their anxiety. It is their sudden and unwanted awareness of their existential situation. That is to say, they're getting bored because they know they only have one life to live and they're wasting time here on a country road in Nowheresville when they should be having fun as hard as they can before they get back to the inevitable grind and back to the fun and back to the grind and so forth. But that, of course, cannot answer the question of mortality that boredom brings out and that the movie brings out through sound in this incessant varied honking, but also through the motion of the camera, you get to see how these different people react to their sudden boredom. Some are graced, the ones who do humorous things, and some are just wasting time because they're used to it. There's a couple of people playing cards on the boot of a car. But mostly, apparently, people are quite angry because they cannot seem deal with this. And we are following along because our protagonists, this would-be murderous couple, are cutting in line. They're not going to stay in their lane. They're going to go in the opposite lane and drive ahead and see whether or not they could get ahead, maybe at the top of the line. They try to stop in a couple of places, but people resentfully, enviously won't let them cut in line. There are all these small motions quietly suggesting passions that are actually quite dark, that reveal people through this situation. A traffic jam becomes an existential crisis. And throughout this one long scene, you see a couple of accidents that, as you said, ends up horrifically. Right. As it were, what is the price for this urgency, for this desperation to get there? Are we there yet? We see a family murdered in a car accident, splashed over the road and the grass on the side. 
This is not trivial intelligence or comedy. It makes a deep, serious moral point about society that is worth thinking about regardless of lefty or righty political positions. Oh, sure. This is very much a worthwhile way of thinking about our situation and our predicament through these comical but also existential problems we're running into. The role of the mundane and absurd, but as they go from the mundane to the absurd, as you pointed out earlier, they suggest that our society could collapse into barbarism. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> yes, and as you mentioned, the incessant horn honking, it's the noise of anxiety. And think about the uh, millennial term for that, FOMO, Yep. fear of missing out. A particular middle-class phenomenon where people feel they have to get in front of others, get ahead of others, even punish others if necessary, because they don't want to miss out on the new thing, the latest thing, the richest thing, the thing that, that's going to give them superiority to another, ultimately the thing that they believe is going to be satisfying, but of course that kind of anxiety cannot be satisfied because it's got the wrong spiritual foundation. This incessant need to get ahead of others. Yes, indeed. It's a great sequence. It, all the ideas in it make it timeless. Yes, indeed. And as we said, it applies to our times when our awareness of our mortality often drives people to desperate ways. Nowadays, getting ahead is primarily a matter of how can you turn yourself into a celebrity and suck up more attention than other people and be declared objectively by our number counting skills more popular than somebody else. That sort of thing. And is the same incessant honking, the noise of anxiety. People have not in any way squared with this, but of course, this anxiety is typical of our age and we have to deal with it. And it is hard to find better resources than a great movie maker to help us along the way. Oh, oh absolutely. And Godard's latest film in the image book is divided into different sections. The first section is particularly instructive, I found, titled Remakes where Godard muses upon this, this new phenomenon of remaking the past, but remaking it without the spiritual impetus, the originality, the purpose of the original works of art. And through this idea, Godard put his finger on a kind of anxiety that I think is running through film culture today. Hollywood's constant dependence upon remaking its own past, cannibalizing its own past, howling out its own past, and at the same time, this emphasis on frenetic comic book action and digital CGI violence. These kinds of remakes of a glorious film history also indicates a kind of anxiety, I think, in the culture that unfortunately uh, almost no critic is honest enough to ever address. And so people are left to celebrating this kind of anxiety when uh, I think one of the most moving points of the image book and Godard's career is that this is not typical of film culture, that film culture at its best confront our needs and errors and expresses them in ways that they can be quite edifying. Yeah, I uh, completely agree. I think this is a great note to end on. I hope our audience will be persuaded to watch some of these Godard movies and everyone who falls in love with his sense of humor and his great style is in store for dozens upon dozens oh, yeah. of movies. So it's quite yeah. a resource and as much worthwhile visiting the first time as revisiting later. And we hope to show that both the delusions of consumerist materialism that's sort of more right-wing and of romantic revolutionaries that are sort of more left-wing shouldn't be above scrutiny mm -hmm. or below consideration either. They are part of what a great filmmaker should know about our times and be able to dramatize and to turn into art 
to be able to tell us truths we might not think of noticing or want to hear, and moreover to tell them in ways that make us understand them, not just acknowledge and move on, so to speak. Absolutely. And maybe at some point in the future we can deal with the uh, irony of conservatives who don't quite get it yet, who don't quite get what value cinema can offer, and that the value goes beyond mere placation of political ideas. Yes, indeed. And so why conservatives should confront movies a bit more critically than they tend to do. Yes, we will have to set up a plan and maybe compare some of the new offerings and attitudes with some great things from our heritage in cinema and see if we don't learn something from such a juxtaposition. Absolutely. Yes. As always, it's a pleasure talking to you, sir, and the source of insight. Thanks a lot for doing this, and let's do it again soon. Thank you, Tito. Great. All the best. Sir. Happy to. All right. You too. Okay.